This is Monocle On Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. Today's program is a UK special. We visit the Design Museum and its new show, The Offbeat Sari. We also check out a showcase of 20th century modernist textiles and, off the back of London Craft Week, hear how contemporary potters are reimagining the moon jar, a Korean ceramic classic. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. We start today's program by considering the sari, an everyday part of many people's wardrobe. The garment can be used as a reflection of one's own identity and a canvas for protest and resistance. It's such notions that are explored in a new landmark exhibition at the Design Museum in London. Called the Offbeat Sari, the show opens this week and celebrates how this garment encompasses complex definitions of contemporary India. The showcase brings together designers and highlights protest groups which have reinvented the sari's image from one rooted in the domestic landscape to an object of dynamism found on the streets of contemporary India. Priya Kanchandani, head curator at London's Design Museum, joined me in the studio to tell us a little more. A sari is one of the most recognisable garments in the world. It's worn in South Asia, predominantly in India, and it's conventionally a single piece of unstitched cloth, a rectangular cloth, which is then draped around the body in a variety of ways. However, today the sari can take a multiplicity of forms. It can be pre-stitched so that you don't have to drape it yourself. Um, It could look a little bit more like a ball gown. It might be styled with a T-shirt. So there are many different forms of sari. And I think there are forms which uh, listeners here might not know about yet. That's what we sort of want to dive into. But maybe maybe the starting point for this is your exhibition that you're curating at the Design Museum is the Offbeat Sari. What prompted you to start down this curatorial journey? I've been thinking about how to represent contemporary India in a gallery space for a long time, about 12 years since I studied at the Royal College of Art. I hadn't quite found the right way in. I was really interested in architecture, in modernism and then its continuation through urban spaces in India and then I was interested in this kind of upwardly mobile new middle class that was emerging and the excitement around that but it wasn't till I lived in India around 2015-16 when I worked with the British Council that I saw women wearing sari in ways that were different from what I had seen here that I became really fascinated by it and I started following certain designers that were really at the helm of reinventing the sari for the modern woman and became curious about them and followed them online and over the years I guess got to know the journey of their work. About three years ago I pitched the idea at the design museum where I was working and we decided to take it forward so I've been developing it for the last two years working with a dedicated curatorial and project management team over the last year. Let's unpack a little bit on that contemporary sari. You know, you you talk about seeing women wearing it in perhaps unexpected ways in in India that you hadn't seen before. What's that evolution looked like? Can you tell us a little bit about if it's a simple piece of cloth that is draped in a certain way, how, how is it changing and evolving? I think having grown up here, and like many people here, I had seen the sari worn by an elder generation or worn in a ceremonial context or at a wedding. 
Um, and I associated it with something I might find in my grandmother's wardrobe, like many members of the Indian diaspora. Um, whereas in India, around the time I was there, I started seeing younger women wearing the sari, intellectual women, artists, writers, journalists, and there was a real growing creative scene at Delhi at this mo- in this moment that was really exciting. And I saw the sari very much as part of that. And the way the sari was being styled, I found that made it identifiable to me and to women like me. We were seeing saris that were less kind of ornamented. They're quite lightweight, handwoven, being styled with like T-shirts and shirts, um, being worn with trainers, which turned the sari into something much more practical for the everyday. Um, That's when I kind of started wearing sari myself. And I found, you know, the idea of things like pre-stitched saris so they didn't have to be draped each time you wore them, you know, made it a lot more accessible. In terms of, I guess, that cultural shift, I sort of read in the exhibition notes that there's also links to resistance, using the sari as a, as a tool for protest. Does that feature into this, I guess, shaking up of, of how it's being worn, you know, no longer with your, your Nan's slippers, but also maybe with some Nike Air Force Ones? So there's always been a sort of progressive strand in sari wearing throughout history and women have worn it in various protest movements through history. There are some notable ones from recent years. The Gulabi Gang, who are a group of women in rural northern India who wear this amazing pink sari and convene to kind of fight for the rights of women, which traditionally have been very poor in these areas. Initially, they were dealing with issues like domestic abuse, but now they have a much broader remit and they have thousands of members, which is amazing. So we're showing one of their pink saris along with a stick um, belonging to Sampath Pal, their founder, that I'm really honoured to have in the exhibition. Um, And there's also the Harigula Army, which is a group of women in Assam who wear a sari onto which they embroider this bird, the Harigula bird, which is an endangered species, and they want to raise awareness in order to save the bird. You know, I think we often view fashion as something superficial, as something associated with beauty. But, you know, these are really serious issues that women are tackling through the way they embody this garment, which I think is amazing. Is that, I guess, using the sari to both communicate identity, but also is there hope that maybe other people will pick up and, and wear the sari like those women that you mentioned? Or how, how does it go beyond, I guess, just those those groups protesting? Was there perhaps initial hesitation when, when people started wearing them with trainers? Or, or how, does it, how does this, I guess, reach out more broadly beyond those groups? The idea of the sari as representative of identity and female empowerment is widespread now. We see women uh, wearing sari in very individual ways, styling it with their own accessories. We've got a whole wall of images in the exhibition showing how women, not just in India, but across South Asia and beyond, are wearing sari in their own you know, styles with different tops, with different accessories they're all photographed on the streets so this is very much part of street culture and a kind of grassroots movement but there's also its manifestation on social media where we're seeing you know women and some men expressing who they are there's um Himanshu Verma who's in the exhibition who's the self-confessed sari man on social media he wears a sari and he's talked about how it expresses his own androgyny There's Sabaya Amin, who has become a sari influencer and has led her to model for various Indian brands. 
and she's a kind of role model for body positivity, for the fact that, you know, a sari model doesn't have to be a particular body shape and has been hugely impactful. Um, and we also show saris associated with women who are athletes and who are dynamic, who are skateboarders, therefore kind of defying this stereotype of the sari as something associated with the domestic woman, with the woman uh, who embodies old world ideals like sacrifice, domesticity, and instead as something dynamic, something associated with movement, with with leisure, which is which is really interesting. Do you think there was ever like a a chance of of the sari dying out without these sorts of grassroots movements or without this sort of change happening. I mean, obviously, I, you sort of mentioned at the top that a huge part of the world, you know, South Asia, it's it's everywhere. But do you think without this evolution, there was there was a danger that the sari might become a relic of the past? Um, I definitely do. Actually, in the sort of eighties and nineties, the sari waned in popularity, and it was something that became confined to an older generation or to kind of more rural areas and also a ceremonial dress. Um, But it wasn't being worn so much in the everyday by people who were going to define the future of culture, i.e. mainly young women in cities. India Today even reported at one point that the sari had become stayed, which is really telling. But that sort of shifted through the late 90s and it came to a head in the noughties in a way that we see manifested today and that's through a range of different changes that have happened the advent of digital political changes economic changes prompted by the economy opening up in 1991 to lots of different influences yeah lots of factors have come together and I think the media has really accelerated them in the last decade is there a model here more broadly for traditional forms of dress and finding ways to, I guess, continue to bring them forward? Is, is, are there lessons that somebody in, in another part of the world, for some reason, Lederhosen's jumping to my mind, but is there, is there somewhere in another part of the world where there's a traditional dress that might seem dated can look to the sari for inspiration in terms of how to do it? It is really interesting that other forms of traditional dress in many countries have become obsolete or become confined to ceremonial contexts, and it's a reminder that that could have happened with the sari, but it's nowhere near that in any way, shape or form. The sari is very much alive, it's very dynamic, it's in the process of evolution all the time, and I don't see it going anywhere. I think one of the reasons for that is its form. It's a single piece of unstitched cloth, and I think the malleability of that as like a canvas for ideas to be embedded in, for women to wear as they please for them to drape as they please I think that has helped it to be able to absorb new influences and change over time and stay relevant. There are a lot of young designers included in in, in this exhibition. Who, who are some of your favourites that feature? There are young designers and there are established designers and there are designers who had smaller studios that are really coming of age now partly because of this movement you know there are many that I'm excited about but you know, Abraham and Thakur, they've been around for several decades. Their work is absolutely wonderful. They are influenced by a kind of modernist tradition, quite minimalist, but they're now experimenting in really exciting ways. They've made this sari made of recycled bottles with X-ray cut sequins, X-rays from hospital waste and cut sequins from them. There is a distressed denim sari by Diksha Khanna, a sari with a Japanese shibori um, textile on the arm 
and there's an armhole through which you can place your hand, which is very unconventional for a sari. There's a really spectacular piece by Sabia Saatchi, a gold sari that was worn at the Met Gala last year by Natasha Purnawala, which is styled with a gold scaparelli bodice. So that gives you, I guess, a flavour of the kinds of saris. We're unpacking why this is significant. And and I guess for me, I'm, I'm always curious, What as curator, what are you hoping that people take away from, from a visit to this show? I mean, I say in the accompanying book that in a way, it's outrageous to think you can define a garment like the sari with a millennia, you know, old history in one exhibition or one book. But I hope that the exhibition gives people a snapshot of how creative and avant-garde Indian design can be through some of the most imaginative and wonderful objects that contemporary design has to offer. Priya Kanchandani there. The Offbeat Sari opens at London's Design Museum on Friday the 19th of May and runs until the 17th of September 2023. Pablo Picasso, Henry Moore and Barbara Hepworth. Names we might be more familiar with when it comes to their artistic output in the worlds of painting, ceramics and sculpture. But what about their work in textiles? Styled by Design is an exhibition that looks at woven works by some of the 20th century's most significant artists and their collaborations with influential manufacturers. Monocle's Sophie Monaghan Coombs went to see the show in London before its next stop at the David Simon Contemporary Gallery in Somerset, England. She sent us this report. I suppose what this exhibition does is it's, it really takes people by surprise. People come, they know the names, they know the artists, they're, they're familiar with that. But what they're not familiar with is the way in this magical moment in the 50s that these artists made their way into people's homes and onto the street. Ashley Gray is the director of Gray MCA, a gallery which focuses on modernist textiles and original fashion illustration. Ashley takes me to look at one particularly striking piece from the mid-50s, a time in which the idea and the concept of modern art and fashion came to a high point in the United States. We're looking at an extraordinary textile, um, which is like a stained glass window. Now, this is a design by Leger. It was done in 1955 for Fuller Fabrics. Leger um, and Chagall and Picasso and Raoul Dufay, um, all were commissioned by Fuller Fabric in the States for fashion. The concept was taken on by some of the top American fashion designers. And Life magazine, thought they ran five, six pages on this. They sent the top supermodels of the day from Paris, from London, from New York, uh, to the artist studios to model these designs amongst their paintings. As we continue through the exhibition, Ashley explains how the period just after the Second World War is pivotal in the world of textiles. There is this key moment when the wall between the fine arts and the applied arts, decorative arts if you like, just begins to crumble. And fine artists, modern artists, are commissioned really for the first time, certainly in Britain in this way, to produce their work for use in the home through interior design, through textiles, and through fashion. And it's the moment we see what I would describe as the democratising 
of modern art. It's making it accessible and, just as importantly, affordable to a whole new audience. The rooms of the exhibition feel like a canvas on which Ashley is showcasing the diversity of the medium. There are fabrics of all sizes, of all types, silk, wool and linen to name a few, and prints and motifs that range from a large white owl on a sky blue background to intricately designed repeating patterns of what appear as almost molecular structures. But what unites much of the exhibition is bright colour and bold pattern. And there's a particular reason why it feels so colourful. Remember, in terms of design, that this moment in the 50s is pivotal because it's a time when engineering is moving forward. But most vitally, it's all about colour and the dyes. Post-war is drab and, and miserable. Between the wars, 95% of dyes came from Germany. So there was no colour when we were at war. After the war, ICI, Morton Sundor, up at Carlisle, we're at the head of this, the research into the science of dyes, synthetic dyes, that would change the atmosphere of, of, of homes and of fashion uh, forever. And it's important to understand that it was the 50s that lay the foundation through these, uh, these extraordinary textiles. It was the 50s that allowed the 60s to be as vibrant as it was because the research happened then and, you know, th things moved forward. Moved forward and people were looking at London. They were looking at London because the likes of emigres like Hans and Elsbeth Judah from the Ambassador magazine, vital tool, vital tool, an export magazine that was bought worldwide that celebrated British design and British textiles. It's not just British history woven into the exhibition, but the United States too. And Ashley is keen to bring this story right up to date. We're also looking at a beautiful little fashion piece by Henry Moore for Asher. And Miro, beautiful little fashion text right here, very Miro-esque with this strange little circular, funny little red, black, like little eye on an amoeba or something like that. Um, re really beautiful. The others here which are of real interest are the block printing. Now these come from the United States and they come at a critical moment. They're part of President Roosevelt's New Deal through the WPA. And what this was about was bringing women into work for the first time, predominantly African-Americans, and it was teaching block printing, it was teaching design at a time when it was vital to put a meal on the table. The husbands had lost their jobs. And these wonderful block prints uh, were produced, and it was one of Eleanor Roosevelt's favourite projects uh, within uh, the New Deal, because it was about bringing life back, but also teaching um, something extraordinary and innovative uh, to those who had really never had that opportunity before. So textiles really have this extraordinary influence on all of this. They're an economic driver at their most micro level and through the Ambassador magazine, my gosh, were they an economic driver 
for Britain post-war, and that's why they played such a key role in those key exhibitions, uh, Britain Can Make It and, and, and the Festival of Britain. For a contemporary, I wanted to show that this story isn't over. Now, this is uh, Beatrice Larkin. Now, she shows her textiles uh, at Heels and Dalesford and elsewhere, and she's working with, with the most beautiful, the softest things I've ever seen. They're beautiful wool. Um, she has them woven in Lancashire. She's sort of rooted in doing it the traditional, a very William Morrisonian, if you like. Um, but the designs I liked hugely. Yes, they're monochrome but they have that kind of Bauhaus aesthetic, if you like, where less is more. So really, I hope that when people come to Style by Design, um, they are surprised, uh, intrigued, uh, and made more inquisitive. The show is a treasure trove of textiles and the importance of textile design. It's made me reevaluate the fabrics I'm surrounded by and how they've been created. Textiles are so vital because they communicate everything about us at key moments in our life, as our tastes change, as our attitudes change, what we wear, what we have in our home. Textiles are such a powerful, powerful influence, not just on ourselves, but on those, on those around us. As we come to the end of our time moving through the rooms, it's clear that the textiles we now choose to drape around our homes, whether as curtains, cushion covers or even book jackets, have a long heritage behind them. And much of that history can be found right here. For Monocle in London, I'm Sophie Monohankoons. Styled by Design opens at the David Simon Contemporary Gallery in Somerset this Friday. It runs until the 30th of June, 2023. The Moon Jar, an orb-like traditional Korean pot thrown in white porcelain. Resembling a full moon, these pieces are a key part of Korea's ceramic history. It's a heritage that has left little space for experimentation or for individual potters to shine. This show's producer, Maylee Evans, went to Cromwell Place to meet the curator, Lloyd Choi, whose recent exhibition, Moon Jar, An Untold Story, featured as part of London Craft Week. The showcase highlighted how an understanding of the Moon Jar could stretch further than their rounded form. To start... Lloyd began by explaining the provenance of these porcelain pieces. The Munja name was first used by this abstract Korean artist in 1940s. So the name is quite modern. The form was started in 17th to 18th century, and 18 is the most flourishing in terms of ceramic uh, in Korea, and they could afford large form. Munja it's all about creating large pot. Technically, you can only call Munja when it's more than 40 centimetres. But of course, nowadays, it's just a metaphor, Munja. Munja is something everybody getting fascinated with. And something I started to notice, everybody are looking at the form. When I thought there was a beauty beyond the form, when Munja is too big, and becoming iconic, individual contemporary artists, especially Korean artists, becoming under that shadow. So I really wanted to go into that story about individual artists because they are the untold story and how they are turning this big historical form 
to influence their work, overcoming or embracing it. So perhaps you talk me through this piece in front of us that maybe doesn't have that typical moon jar shape that we might expect. Um, tell me who this is made by and a little bit about it. The one small example we're looking on our table in front of us is blue jar by Che Boram. In our space next to the window, there is blue moon jar by her that she technically challenged herself, making 40 centimeter bar width, not thrown, but hand built. This is the female porter. She wants to move away from the traditional Korean ceramic, which is defined and everything is nicely glazed and perfect. Where we are looking at these pieces, she unglazed it, bringing this roughness and rawness of the material. And also why she was building little patches of clay. She really wants to give that the finger marks and because it, it's not glazed, you can see they're all coming up, creating texture with her hand-drawn blue lines all around it. She broke that tradition as well. So it meant to be non-decorated, but she decorated with these graphical, amazing patterns. But still she's saying this is a blue moon jar. And I suppose there might be some people who look at that and go, but it's not a moon jar, or it's going too far. Where do you see that line... When people walk in, say, oh, it's Munja. Wow. There must be something that's speaking to you. Perhaps we move on to this, this other piece you've got in front of us. So it has got that typical shape of the two rice bowls and it is connected in the middle, but it is a lot smaller than that 40 centimetres you were talking about earlier. So tell me, yeah, which makeup we got in front of us and a bit about the piece. We are thrilled to having one of Master Porter. I mean, I don't know whether I like the word Master Porter. It sounds really ancient. It's more like modern master, because this Isu Jong, he was born in 1948. He played important role, really shaping, modernizing Korean ceramic. His Munja, which is really radical, because Munja is a half and half, joining the middle, and his Munja showed that line he really wants to show this process, how it's made. Then he gives one, two brush strokes of iron oxide, creating this negative space that we can see now. By giving the one stroke, we can see the negative space, something we haven't thought about. The invisibility is coming up. So this is all about balancing. Someone like him in his work is really philosophical, coming from maybe Chinese philosophers, Lao Tzu. I mean, even then you were like, oh, I don't like the word, you know, mm-hmm. master potter. Or how difficult is it to move away from traditions or I guess a very old school way of looking at how something should look or be or present itself? I think that <laughs> Korea has a love for tradition. You know, they have a love for traditional idea about the ceramic and pottery and they want to keep that way the inheritance, the traditional, the masters. But I think that's, that can be quite nostalgia, you know, before the war, before the all the time. But I think it's the time to move on. Because like Lee Su-jong again, in the 70s, he was influenced by American ceramic sculpture. So his works, forms, was so abstract. But there was no audience in Korea. He had a hard time, had to struggle to show his work, people as, this is not tradition, therefore you're not doing it right. And I can see the struggle through his work because 90s, 
he started going back to traditional form. Then he started using these brush strokes, iron oxide, like abstract painting. So he's treating the ceramic as a canvas. And that became more acceptable. So people like him, they have to sacrifice expressing artist self. And, but I, I guess that's the good foundation. You know, he gave us that good foundation. So I think this is happening now. So we, we better accept it. Do you feel like there is a growing audience for that in Korea? Or is it that makers are still finding audiences maybe elsewhere and moving around to find those people who understand that? I think definitely happening in Europe a lot, in America. There is a lot of interest there. In Korea, yes, too. But I think love kills you. Because there's so much love for their own ceramic. They have this idea about the utilitarian, the functionality. But look at this Cheboram. She doesn't glaze her pot. You cannot put water in it. She doesn't want you to use this. But let's just enjoy this as an object. But I think when I see young audience in Korea, they are ready for this. Lloyd Choi there, in conversation with May Lee Evans. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced and edited by May Lee Evans. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>